From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Standard Chartered's $1 billion fine, London looks set to take the Fintech unicorn crown from San Francisco, and your cat could be the next voice of the meowing debit card. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 313 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Jason Bates and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Adam Davis. How's it going, Adam? It's going very well. How's it going with you? Uh, Busy, because I've got that just back from skiing last week, trying to catch up with everything in the first few days vibe going on. It's been a busy week. Lots and lots of early morning meetings this week. It's been, uh, yeah, tiring, but uh, fulfilling, but tiring. Because you've got that multiple time zone thing going on of Asia, Middle East, I'm work- US. Yeah, I'm now working over, uh, well, this week I've been working over three time zones. Um, yeah, hard. Good, but hard. <laughs> Long, I'd say. So I think we need to order the coffee in for Adam. Uh, But as always, (laughs) we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests. We've got Anthony Crawford, Director Venture at Visa Europe. Hey, Anthony. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending on which time zone you're listening in. Yeah. Uh, How are you doing? Very well, yeah. Excited to be here today. Excited to have you. Chris Lowe, Senior Advisor at Motive Labs. Good evening. How are you? Very good. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Great to have you on, Chris. Someone who actually understands banking. It's like we've been waiting for 313 episodes. <laughs> oh, dear Emily, now you set me up. <laughs> and Emily Nicole, technology editor at City AM. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm also just back from skiing. Oh, so nice. I'm adjusting Canada to the UK. Okay. You, you don't have the panda eyes going on or anything? No, it's I like... only got sunburn one day, but it, I did look a bit rough for about a week. But it's, all, it's, it's okay now. It's gone back down. You're, you're fine, Emily. <laughs> So let's get started. So first up, uh, an exclusive from Reuters, Standard Chartered expected to pay just over $1 billion to resolve US and UK probes. So Standard Chartered PLC has agreed to pay $1.1 billion to US and British authorities for conducting illegal financial transactions that violated sanctions against Iran and other countries, government authorities announced on Tuesday. They said that, uh, that Standard Chartered undermined the integrity of our financial system and harmed our national security by deliberately providing Iranian with coveted access to the US economy. And it seems that payments from Iran got through a a fax machine at the Dubai branch, obviously a lot of fintech going on there. And uh, dozens of clients used an internet platform to access US dollar accounts from Iran, uh, where bank compliance officers failed to take steps to to ensure that those transactions were blocked. So in a statement on Tuesday, Standard Chartered said that it accepted responsibility for the violations, which stopped after 2014, and the bank said it had cooperated with investigations. So AML and and sort of the the corner edge cases of transferring money across the world, what do we think? So I, I think um, from our, my perspective anyway, links back to 2014, I think you need to sort of go back in time on this. Um, I think the 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 interesting, um, I suppose, overarching point on this is how uh, Standard Chartered have, I guess, um, almost allocated cash, if you like, in their uh, in their end of years or in their 2018 um, uh, results for this. They knew it was coming. This is not, shouldn't be too much of a surprise, particularly for anybody right now. Um, I think um, the interesting thing is the motivation as to why they stopped in 2014 versus now. Um, and what happened in the market around that time, which we'll probably bring up in a sec. Um, 
but also, I suppose, going forward and as more and more sanctions go on to more and more countries and as Donald Trump sort of makes his way around the world, um, how is this going to affect, again, banks going forward in terms of more and more countries coming on those sanctions lists? But Standard Chartered aren't the only one. I mean, 2015-17, Deutsche paid $11.2 billion, uh, for a wide variety of valuations. There's something interesting, I think, in just the number of global banks who are being expected to police arguably trillions of transactions, you know, on behalf of the regulator to, to stop this. And we've got fax machines and apps and, uh, you know, all kinds of things going on. And this latest investigation, it only it came out of a probe on another bank. It came out of a probe against BNP Paribas, which then paid a record eight point nine billion in penalties. Um, so, like, it's almost like a daisy chain effect here. I'd, I'd add um, that um, uh, this was a historic, which which was already mentioned, but I think that's quite important to to realise in this, and also the. Um, uh, complexity of cross-border transfer. You said the daisy chain effect. It's going through multiple banks. In those days, there was not so much focus on automated pickup or suspicious transactions, etc., etc. We're a very different world, and maybe we'll come on to what a bank's trying to do today to ensure they don't end up in the same position. So, no surprise, um, still comes to over $2 billion if you add up the fines. Uh, for Standard Chartered. But, uh, and, and I guess there's that, you know, there's always that question of local branch manager trying to help his customers, his clients, move, you know, move stuff along. Uh, you know, you've got head office a long way away and AML is there in the back of your mind, but still, you know, the guy in front of me wants to move this money. How do I, how do I help them along in that? Maybe back then, I think any branch manager would immediately say <laughs> it's front of mind today. <laughs> so uh, much that they might like to help, they know somewhere it will be picked up. So it just wouldn't happen. Interesting. Anthony, what do you think? Well, there's been like 25 billion or 26 billion of fines over the last like eight years, right? And they're mm. still coming out. So as much as maybe a local branch manager is aware that it's a problem, the 28 billion is not his problem. And he's just caring about his PL, right? And it comes down to that incentive of what are these local guys doing? Are you willing to turn a blind eye to half a million here? and Or are you actually just, yeah, have they got targets, which is more important in the short term? Or in the the AML is, to Jason's point, just a head office problem. But if the money is US dollars, it has to clear through New York. That's my point. It will always go through there. So the branch manager will be aware. There's very, there may be very small transactions, say, intra Middle East, but 99.9 go through US. So. I think it's something that uh, Simon Taylor often talks about that, you know, 3% of illegal or AML transactions are really caught, 97% out there. The, the ones that are caught suddenly have billions of fines. I mean, if you extrapolate that, that's 97% of those transactions still uncaught with a lot of fines. And we don't have the interconnected data a lot of the time in order to to work out what's real and what's not. Is it just the people who aren't very good at this who are getting caught at the moment? Well, I think I think the motivations there, on if if the profits almost outweigh the fines, and the motivations will con continue to be there to do this. And I think that's um, I think the interesting thing about the BNP Paribas fine was that they actually stopped their dollar clearing business um, and they penalised actually the operations of BNP Paribas, which was, I think, maybe was the wake up call uh, for Standard Chartered back in 2014. But I think, um, I suppose, if you're looking at the way that banks are penalised for this, um, again, it's profits over fines, profits in general win at the moment. And I think that is almost encouraging the wrong kind of behaviour. But again, um, to Chris's point, this goes back to 2014. So since then, maybe the right incentives almost to stop this behaviour have been put in place. 
And there are a lot of automated softwares that the banks have to have if they're going to play in the US market, US dollar markets. Interesting stuff. Well, let's move on to the next story. London startups to take fintech unicorn crown from San Francisco. So of the 29 global unicorns, nine are in San Francisco, seven are in London. 39% of European VC money went to London and reports suggest that London will actually overtake San Francisco in funding this year, bringing the total number of fintech unicorns to match and overtake San Francisco. In January, it was revealed that tech firms in London had raised a total of £1.8 billion in venture capital and public listings, uh, followed by Berlin, where companies have secured £936 million. So more than 50% of Brits are using fintech services against a global average of 33%. So does this uh, cement London as being the fintech capital of the world? I mean, in my view, it already is, and it always has been. Um, but obviously, there's always that big US spectre hanging over everybody in London that tells you still still not quite there still not quite good enough um but this data really did kind of warm my heart a little bit when I was seeing it I wrote this story um and when it came in it was like you know confirming what we already knew we all know that London is still taking decent amounts of VC money fintech is the fastest growing sector especially also with with regards to jobs as well it's one of the fastest growing sectors of the UK economy in terms of hiring um but to know that we're also kind of coming up on the US and could even match it this year is definitely something we're all striving for, I think. So why do you think that is, Chris? Um, you obviously are involved in a variety of startups and have a big bag background as well. Like, what is it about London that's, that's led to this? Um, well, I think there are many different aspects to it. I mean, London's still a great place to live. Whatever's going on around us without mentioning the word. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, secondly, uh, I think uh, since George Osborne's days, um, the government have really said this is going to be a cornerstone of the UK's economy going forward. So there's a lot of support for it. Um, and they've also taken quite a proactive uh, approach to the Department of International Trade, looking at how they can help other countries uh, adopt Sandbox, for example, which has become really a sort of UK crown so I can call it in the fintech world. And is that something that you see as well, Anthony, from a visa venture perspective? How do you see London and the UK versus the rest of your portfolio? So for us, we're pretty lucky we get to invest globally, right? So we get to go all the way to Tel Aviv and Berlin and everywhere else in between. I mean, it's the scale that the guys in London have managed to get to very much on the consumer side as well, right? I think Monzo Revolut TransferWise obviously leading that charge. Um, but yeah, it's for us, it's the access to capital here is phenomenal, right? The biggest venture funds in London all live in like a 200 meter like stretch in Soho, right? So you can go and see all of them at lunchtime. So the access to capital is great. The talent's been phenomenal, but I think the FCA is kind of a like dark horse, right? Everybody talks about it as a regulator, we're all copying, we're all learning. And we see that kind of in Frankfurt and Tel Aviv as how do they actually learn from a financial regulation point of view to make it a more open environment. Yeah, because London has one of those places where the regulator, the asset managers, the banks, the fintechs, some of the best universities are all within stone's throw. It's almost like Silicon Valley plus Washington plus New York plus, you know, wherever Boston, uh, all in, in one city, which is quite unusual on a global stage. And if you compare it to where some of the unicorns in America are coming, right? So Cabbage is down in Atlanta, which has historically been a kind of banking and technology heartland. It's not Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Same North Carolina and Boston have got their outliers, one or two like unicorns. Mm -hmm. So you just don't get the concentration you get in London. Mm. 
I think the regulation point is a really interesting one. So we, uh, of all the inquiries that we get at the moment um, for businesses who want to start up new entities or set up new banks, um, a lot of them want to to do that in the UK, principally because of the FCA and the regulations and, and how you actually are licensed. Um, and no better example of this is open banking in terms of the way that we're taking that knowledge and then uh, passing it overseas in terms of the way that we're going around all the geographies at the moment. Um, the open banking implementation entity in terms of what they've built has been a great success. Um, and I think it, it's um, we've still got that mantle of being, and it's only really growing actually in terms of um, prominence, but we've got that mantle of being from a regulatory perspective, the, the shining light, um, not just obviously looking uh west but also looking east as well and i think that's really important and i think we see our global clients come on a tourism holiday to come and check out fintech in london right <laughs> so we have australian banks singapore banks coming and spending two or three days in london it's like what the hell's going on here what is this fintech stuff how is it working how is open banking happening in the uk and what do we need to be ready for in a year or two mm. i find that uh, fintech tourism business fascinating because you've got people who used to go over to silicon valley i think five or ten years ago that was the 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 trail it was like go and see facebook and go and see google and now you've got a lot more going to china go and see wechat go and see alipay and then you've got people coming the other way where it's like suddenly from singapore and hong kong they're coming over to the uk to see how it does it you know i'm sure that there's a uh, uh, a fintech holiday firm at some point who, that's curating all of these uh, these tours 11FS vacation. Yeah, I was going to say, hang on a minute. <laughs> See, David Breer's away and suddenly we're creating new business units. And I think the level of government support also can't be underestimated because it takes a really proactive role in this. I'm not normally one to toot the government's horn, but um, the Department of International Trade in particular, they've been so... In, in trying to get our fintechs to expand and scale, which is something that, Chris, you said we've done very well, Um they're really proactive. They took a bunch of fintechs over to Amsterdam because they recognize that the regulatory environment there is very similar to here. It's almost like the FCA is like reaching out in parts just to its similar friends and being like, look, you can all come and join and <laughs> everybody can grow together. I don't know how it's working coming the other way, but at least sending UK out is doing very well. Well, it is for now, but let's leave that topic for another time. <laughs> on the subject of VC funding, next up, we've got a batch of funding rounds announcements. So on The Telegraph, they said that uh, Monzo seeks to raise £100 million in new funding. Monzo previously raised £85 million from investors in October in their most recent uh, funding round at a £1 billion valuation. But it's now seeking fresh funding from a US backer, which is rumoured to be Y Combinator, uh, their growth fund. Uh, and that could give them a £1.9 billion valuation. Now, something that keeps coming up through whatever article you read is that Monzo made a loss last year of up to February 2018 of 33 million. So it'd be great to hear from a journalist's perspective. Well, like, what, what is it that's, that keeps bringing people back to the, uh, to the P&L on these, these funding rounds? Well, I think that for some, for some times when we do these rounds that we cover, for example, I'm thinking specifically, I, I came into 11FS to talk about um, Revolut when we were all saying they were about to raise 500 million. Um, and we talked about their losses then as well. Obviously, it's people don't quote the numbers as much when it comes to Revolut. Um, but it's always something to note that when these rounds come so close together, when a bank has just raised, you know, 100 million, 80 million, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, a couple months later, in Revolut's case, it was six months, but in Monzo's case, very close together, they're, look, they're going again and getting more money. Mm. You, you, it makes you wonder, what are they plugging so much money into that means they need to raise again and give away more equity mm. in order to keep sustaining themselves? And most of our hunches are it's the US. 
the US takes a lot of money to enter and it's the golden goose that every fintech bank wants to to get into right now. Um, So that's probably why. But I mean, in this instance, you'd have to ask James Cook. (laughs) So what do you think from a global perspective, Anthony? Is is the US really the the place everyone's going for? Do you you get to see that kind of thing? I think you you definitely see the US is just you have access to a single market and you grow that much quicker, right? And they haven't been shy. Tom has always said he wants a billion customers and let's go and get 300 million in North America. Seems like a reasonable step on that process. But to the point about the money, I think it's it's interesting. Like if they're only losing 33 million a year and they've got close to 2 million cardholders now, right? It's only 15 pounds a cardholder of their cost base, which isn't actually that bad compared to some traditional institutions, right? They would kill for that <laughs> that cost base. So it's interesting to see the money. I mean, you take the burn rate and figure out that they've now got 180 to 200 in the bank. Mm. That's going to be, they can double their cost and burn rate for the next two years. And that's that's probably for North America. And so what do you think, Chris, about um, challenger bank unit economics? Is it something you'd have kill, killed for back in your old big banking days? Well, I think some of these valuations still take my breath away, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, bank banks tend to be looked at from things like return on assets, um, if you're making a loss, there is no return. Uh, and yet these valuations are multiples of projected revenues at some future point in time. So we're moving into a very different era. I hope not the dot-com um, era, but uh, a realistic uh, era where valuations are based off quite often, in my view, maybe there's some different views, what would they be worth with that revenue stream when you combine it with a full platform? Because many of these fintechs are fairly specific. So in this case, credit card-led, that's where they're burning their money. You've got to have a constant funding flow to be able to grow your balance sheet. End of story. Nothing complex behind that. Add to, add to which, if you're going to do the States, you're going to need a massive war chest to be able to uh, yeah. grow at the same rates, but on a multiple of customer numbers. So, um, yeah, we, we have to see. They, they are reaching some fantastic valuations, but somewhere they have to turn into profitability. And for banking, I think it's perhaps more front of mind generally than it is for pure fintech players. And especially this year, I think for journalists, it's been important for us to note the valuation side when we're thinking about these rounds, because this year is the year of the tech IPO. Yes. So many tech companies are going for IPO this year, Lyft, Pinterest, Uber, Mm. Zoom, Slack, who knows who else. Um, And in every case, almost, they've not quite priced at their valuation. And so for us, if we're thinking about these companies as heading towards IPO, obviously Monzo's tandem, they've all mentioned it before. Um, you need to also be factoring in what their valuation is at every point if they're going to tell you. Um, not all fintechs like to tell you their valuation, and maybe that's because it's a little bit smaller than the others. <laughs> I, think- I think I'm right in saying Network International is a payments company with a, an interest in MasterCard and um, one of the uh, Middle Eastern banks has just come to the market with an IPO and seen great valuations post-launch. Their share price has gone up significantly. So there's an interesting play around it. So no, they're not all overvalued. There's some that are coming to the market mm. undervalued. But do you think there's something about the business cycle as well? I mean, there's a there always seems to be points in business cycles where businesses and startups want to get out and actually build capital because they suspect that it might be problematic or more difficult in a year or in, a, in two years. No one wants to be on the verge of greatness and suddenly the VC well has dried up. Yes. Is that something you, you see? Yeah, so even you take fintech multiples, right? Public multiples inform what you're going to do in private valuations. And two years ago, most fintech was running at kind of a 15x revenue multiple. And we certainly use that as a benchmark. 
right now we're at kind of eight to 10x from what we're seeing in public. And you can see that numbers creeping down. And again, the topic we're all avoiding is part of that and Trump and China and everything else. So I think they, they see that in the back of their mind, right? That market of are people going to be willing to invest and take risks is closing. And that gold rush this year is going to just challenge everybody which i guess takes us on to tandem and there's an article in altfi that says fintech valuation saw tandem eyes a fresh 80 million pound funding round so tandem's looking to cash in on its recent flow of activity in europe and on hong kong with a launch of a funding round said to be bigger than 80 million uh, bigger than the 80 million it raised in 2018 it comes as the bank has reached 600,000 customers in the uk and announced plans to launch in asia which is an interesting uh you know interesting uh, point compared to the US expansion that lots of other people are looking for. In early 2018, they raised £80 million of equity capital from the takeover of Harrods Bank, which again is a bit of a strange sentence to say, uh, which saw it take on £400 million of deposits, a £375 million mortgage loan book, and acquire a banking licence in one foul swoop. Ricky Knox at his best. So what do we think about this one? I mean, the the takeover of Harrods Bank is is a nothing to you know shake a stick at. It was definitely a big jump for Ricky to do, but it was definitely something that Tandem needed. It wasn't going to be able to continue operating as a bank unless it did so, um, and that's where the bulk of their money has come from so far. The jump to Asia, however, is not necessarily surprising. They took a stake. Did they take a stake from Convoy, or have they just partnered? I can't remember exactly um, which. I think didn't Convoy ba- uh, back out at fifteen some million point? they uh, were going to put in, but I don't yes. know if they actually uh, signed. Okay. Well, so um, the jump to Asia is not exactly that surprising. They've partnered with Convoy. There was talks about some funding going on there. We're not sure how those are going anymore. Um, But Tandem aren't the only ones to make the Asian leap either. Revolut is jumping in every angle it can. And Singapore, Japan definitely places on its list. It has licenses in both. Um, And also set to launch in Australia any day now. I got told a couple of weeks ago they've made their first transactions over there. Um, So that is soon. Um, So it's not necessarily a unique thing anymore that it's going to Asia. But for somebody as small as Tandem, it's definitely big steps. But for their product, Hong Kong actually makes a lot of sense, right? Tandem don't take deposits directly. They're not doing a consumer bank account. They're relying on open banking to get that aggregation point and then sell credit. In Hong Kong, they're putting in open banking. They're developing that API. So that in a year will look a lot more like London. And if you compare Tandem's user base, I'd assume is fairly London-centric. And that kind of slightly higher net worth is all credit and lending. Um, Card interchange fees in Hong Kong are much higher than they are in Europe still, although they're going to be capped soon. So actually, it's makes a ton of sense for them to copy and paste that product over. Well, uh, and it's good to go now. I mean, we've been doing some work over there with Standard Chartered, who are again, you know, launching a, one of these virtual banks. The fact that the HKMA have given out five new licenses is suddenly going to make that, that whole market, both with new tech players, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Bank of China, like lots of people I think are eyeing Hong Kong as being, it's almost like the next battlefield for fintech retail banking so to get over there if you can get there early is is probably a good idea i think it'll be interesting to see how tandem breaks the cultural barriers well obviously they're a very english brand they have all english stuff and yes they have convoy on the ground in hong kong to help them along with that but the concept of fintech and digital banking is very well known in the uk the adoption wasn't too hard because we already had things like contactless debit cards whereas in hong kong they might be competing with completely different technology you don't like they, it's a big jump to make, but we'll see how they do. Local partners are always important when you enter new markets because none are the same. 
even in Europe, you're closer to home. You know that France is different to Germany, to, mm. to the UK in terms of where the infrastructure sits, etc. And um, yeah, I guess Standard Chartered has been in Hong Kong for 150 years, so it's um, it's it's been there early. Whether it can adapt with the, um, uh, you know, as, as it has been publicly announced, even Standard Chartered has partnered with retail and telco partners to launch something there, and I think that's something that's very different to what we saw with the new challenger banks in the UK. Actually, a lot of those new licenses seem to be groups of retail players, telco players, tech players, banking, to come together to to provide a uh, a more rounded value proposition, which isn't something we've really seen on in other parts of the world. But it could be reflective of this profitability question in terms of actually, you know, off the back of enormous or, or very large investments up front, how can you actually become profitable very quickly, very soon over, you know, a two, three year period rather than a five, six, maybe plus period. Um, and I think a, a lot of that, and going back to what we were talking about with Monzo, a lot of that is around uh, product choice. And in terms of, you know, Monzo and Starling, you know, they've gone for a consumer account, which, Anthony, as you said, you know, traditionally is the hardest thing to make profitable. Um, so it's the hardest challenge in banking is to turn that that product into something which A, makes money, but B, actually serves the customer in the right way. If you look at someone like Oak North, who've taken a sort of a different approach to their product, you, you, you're two years in, profitable to the tune, I think it was 10 million last year and going up and up and up. So I think they've they've chosen a, a hard use case, but for the purpose that they want to change banking so but i guess it's that you know strategic vision this is you know tom's billion customers this isn't launching a current account a commodity product to fight other commodity products mm. it's being the control panel for your financial life which therefore needs to be where your salary comes in because that's where it all it all comes from there so on one hand you know you've got the profitability question but on the other hand they're bringing vc money on the promise of yes. this isn't an yeah. account it's the control panel for everything and and if you can you can get that a bit like the fight for the um, living room you know is it the uh, alexa or the apple tv or your playstation like if you really get control of entertainment and gaming and everything then suddenly the you know world's your oyster and the valuations i think is still based on that promise that that is going to materialize into something it's just when is that going to happen and who's going to be the first to do it because um, again I think even now we've talked about marketplaces a lot we talk about it a lot with our clients in terms of that strategy is you can understand it in your mind and you can see where the value economics are but it hasn't actually hit yet um, who's doing that really really well and when will it become and it might be what you were just saying in terms of that um you know that morphosis of you know telco stroke banking stroke other services in one um the not you know the, the kind of the wechat alipay model um that might be it is it, are those sort of pitches and and th and things that are uh, that you see, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, every single seed or like seed founder who comes up is like, I'm going to change the world. And I'm going to do everything <laughs> for everyone. And um, naturally, we're like, we see a thousand pitches a year and do two or three deals, right? So we we say no to lots. Um, don't discourage you guys from dreaming big, but um, for, for us as an investor, it's yeah, it's not something which necessarily is attractive. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, uh, from my background in Africa, collaboration between telcos, mm. banks, and other value adds was the only way to go mm. for the simple reason not everyone's got deep pockets. There may be a lot of money now, but in due course, funding your growth, if you've got a partner who can fund their speciality bit and you can agree that the revenue sharing or the profit profitability sharing, you've got a much more powerful model. And from a bank's perspective, sitting with a banker's hat on, I can get best in class and maybe two top two best in class. So if one fails, I've got a second one. If I've built it myself, 
not such an easy model and I may end up with a dead horse at the end of the day. Mm. But everyone points to M-Pesa, but it's been around a long time and no one seems to have, have sort of recreated that or spread that elsewhere. Like, is that really a, you know, a, a, is it a singular unicorn of a, of a proposition in one particular territory or does that sort of telco-based banking really, really spread? Now we're getting me onto my pet subject, which we discussed the other day. <laughs> Tee you up there. So yeah, um, to, to my mind, Impesa um, relies heavily on uh, almost a monopoly that Safaricom or Vodacom, to us, has in the Kenyan market. And Kenya is one of the few markets where uh, telcos are leading mobile banking rather than the banks. And the regulators and other markets have got very nervous about that. So if you look at the more normal scenario, most of you will be familiar that the the banking regulator wants to be the lead on how things are going to develop. And therefore, uh, while there are a few players out there like Orange shouting from the treetops, we're going to become a bank, I don't think they'll get the regulatory license. Uh, Much that they would love to, much that they have the ecosystem of customers, but bring the two together. The telco's problem of not having value-add products because they've got voice, which is now not worth a lot, and data, which is dropping in value mm. significantly. Combine it with the bank, they've got some some value to add, particularly if it's asset, uh, asset-led or wealth management, etc. And um, yeah, the banks have that license already. So that's where the partnership, which certainly we were trying to push uh, in, in Africa through Leseca, works very well. And, and the, the current or transactional account is really, you've used control panel, we just said it's the rails for everything. Mm. And that bit has to be squeaky easy to use and attractive because you can go off in lots of directions. So the players that are trying to consolidate that mm. will be the winners, but they have to have mm. major players for different reasons in that ecosystem. But because in some way you're taking uh, areas of business that are being commoditized data transfer, banking, retail to some level and saying maybe together we can create some differentiation again because actually we're being, you know, there's a race to the bottom within our market. You know, maybe there's something there. Well, I think Orange have actually done a reasonable job across like mainland Europe, right? So if you look in Central Eastern Europe, Czech, Poland, Romania, Orange Bank and Orange Money as a brand because they have that history and they've actually built huge user bases, right? They're mm-hmm. one of the most successful fintechs in France behind Lydia in terms of consumer numbers mm-hmm. because of the power of that brand and that branch network. They may not be hugely profitable, but they are actually growing. I wonder how much 5G is going to change all that as well. When, tele- when telcos managed to get that stuff rolling eventually, not this year, probably next year, um, and maybe they start to see some revenues coming in from that, whether that'll amp them up as a player to reckon with because they have that innate access before others do. But haven't they tried this with 3G and 4G and all of these licenses? And 5G needs ridiculous numbers of antennas very close together all over the place. So I I kind of get it, but I find the, the convergence of all of these commodity services because ultimately, do customers just want to pay the one bill or the you know the one thing out of my uh, bank account rather than all of my subscriptions and all of my things? Are we are we heading to a world where we've got you know ecosystems of players that are really heavily integrated into well, each I mean, other? Being a commodity business isn't actually that bad news, right? Taking a tiny cut on millions and billions of activations is actually a pretty good business model, and it's just unfortunately the telcos don't want to be unsexy. They want to be that brand, and they want my consumer front end. They don't <laughs> want to just be a big dumb pipe in the background, right? But isn't that true for banks as well? Yeah. I mean, whenever we go and talk to clients, no one wants to be the underlying infrastructure for everything. They want to own the consumer relationship and sell things through there. Yet 
yet you think that some super low cost, very lean, you know, product engine where everything comes from your balance sheet is a is not a bad business. Well, where have all the huge valuations we've just seen on mergers at the kind of 50 billion FISs, Fiserv, Vantiv, that's all big, boring infrastructure. <laughs> well, meanwhile, in Asia, we're seeing the real action. You know, forget all of these single tens of digits, millions. Let's go for the big B word. SoftBank have uh, have backed Grab uh, as they seek another $2 billion in funding in an expansion drive. I mean, look, I could expand quite a lot for $2 billion. It's looking to raise <laughs> that, that money to ramp up expansion only weeks after announcing another $4.5 billion of funding in what's become Southeast Asia's largest round of private financing. The mega funding comes as Grab rolls out an aggressive strategy to expand its range of services from transport to food delivery, payments, racing Indonesia's Gojek in becoming an app for everything in Southeast Asia, home to 650 million people. So funding is going to be raised from strategic investors, including SoftBank, with a mix of debt and equity. Now, this is VC on a big scale. What do we think? I mean, it's only weeks after the last one. It's almost like a like an additional part of the same round, I think, is how it was mm. spun. Um, but I'm not really sure on the reasoning for this one. What What is their reasoning for going that far in and getting another two billion is it just that they've noticed that a rival's hot on their heels or is it that they've discovered there's some other avenue they could explore if only they had that extra two billion i mean i mean yeah. there are vcs and there's softbank like how do you see this <laughs> softbank are great if you want to you know get an exit in a few years or you want someone to do your follow-on financing it means we don't have to <laughs> that's excellent for us but i think it's to that point of where do you go with that two billion i think they are in that like one-to-one -one war with Gojek and you saw it with Didi versus Uber, who could raise more money to go after China? And eventually they had to come to an armistice, right? But Grab have already managed to force Uber out in that kind of armistice and consolidate. I think it's just spending their way to make sure they remain number one. And actually with what they're trying to do with GrabPay across that region, it's just about network effects, right? So they're trying to grow from having one merchant, which is Grab Taxi, they're up to three or 4,000. With $2 billion, you can probably incentivize a lot more merchants in that entire ecosystem to come on board and get... But uh, to, to make a pun, is this a land grab? You know, yeah. is uh, both for Grab and for Monzo, Starling, Revolut, you know, N26... It's not about profits now. It's about grabbing the digital banking future, the truly digital propositions. And if you can get there, then everyone says, look, it's the Amazon play. It's like, if we can own this thing, then this is, you know, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of revenue. Um, but that takes a lot of money and very aggressive expansion rather than focusing on profits, I guess. It's a, it's a winner-takes-all market, right? Like there's only going to be one person who becomes a de facto and gets 99% of the revenue for that market. And they're making sure they're there. There's kind of the inverse of we've got $6 billion and SoftBank on board. Why would you bother funding anybody else in this market? We're clearly the best funded, like on its own, it kind of self-fulfilling. But do you think that's true for um, for banking in general? Like, because different markets have, you know, thousands of players, hundreds of players, an oligopoly, a monopoly. Are there network effects in banking that means that actually the, there will be something that drives you to a player? Because in the UK and Hong Kong, there are like five dominant players now-ish. Um, is that the right number or does digital change that? That's a good question. I mean, they've always said the top three banks take make 80% of the profits in any particular market space. And if you go to one player, where's choice? And I think the consumer is still going to want choice. And so to say there will be a single player that grabs all, 
they might do for your commoditized transactions, but there's still going to be plenty of space around the outside for some significant players to be. But I don't think you're going to have, for the sake of argument, 50 wealth managers uh, in a small market. You might have a couple that have got specialities. So, Yeah, I think the, the digital point for us is it lowers the cost of entry, right? So the UK's had a consolidatory market for years and years, right? Number of banks decrease year over year. Now all of a sudden the cost to entry has dropped dramatically. You're getting more and more people coming in. And with infrastructure players, Solaris, Bankable, Mambu, the cost to get off the ground is getting closer to zero, right? You now need 5 million. Same as when internet moves to cloud services, AWS for a few thousand your life. That same bit in banking probably means you're going to have even more banks being opened and even more banking services being launched. The question of if we have a thousand in the UK and you have a bank just for Italian plumbers in London, which only has like 600 com- like clients, can it be profitable on its own? It hasn't got a long-term <laughs> option. So that's where we then come back to how do you collaborate and bring together different things. So well, maybe well, it's plumbers, carpenters, joiners. <laughs> but, but it also comes back to what business model are we talking about? Because if we're talking about the classical banking business model, where it's about balance sheets, it's about scale, it's about net interest margin, fees and charges, then I agree with you. If it's about the level above that and it's about services and you can bring the unit cost down far enough that you're then making money, at least marginally, on every additional customer, that's great. So there's an interesting question there for me on, are we talking about the digital services, subscription, premium, freemium, ad supported, all those models? Are we talking about banking business models or some combination of both? Like, how do these things work? Remember, I think consumers at the moment want to be multi-banked or are multi-banked, certainly in the UK. Um, And I think if that's uh, that's a trend, almost this, as as you said, the the lowering of that sort of point of entry into the market has has enabled people to do that. And actually those niche services, whilst not going to the levels of maybe Italian plumbers, but but, but there are relatively niche services um, that are being uh, offered to customers and consumers uh, seem to be liking it, like the adoption rates, as, as we've said before, in the UK incredibly high and I think um, I, I think that that's kind of an interesting trend especially for us as we look into different propositions and and, and um, I suppose on analyzing customer jobs and what people actually want to do um, it's super interesting to understand maybe from five years ago to now exactly what consumers want and how much their wants and jobs have changed because of that lower point of entry not just in banking but in other technological uh, industries and silos. I think it's definitely running along the banking side as well. There was a stat that was in my London FinTech Unicorn story um, from the research that I wrote about, which was that 51% um, like e-money firms in the UK rose 51% in a single year. Um, so it's definitely becoming something that people at bank, at least businesses are chasing. They're seeing the likes of Monzo and Starling and Revolut and thinking that's what I need to do. And so that's where all these niche propositions are coming out of. I have a friend who started a company last year doing savings for just holidays. And it's a savings app just for that. Mm-hmm. And people are using it. People like it. Is that an app or is that a feature? Uh, it's an app. Money cardo. <laughs> but, should, but should it be? If you, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that to, uh, to Anthony's point, the whole question of how expensive this is, what size of scale leads you to something that's sustainable. You know, a few years ago with Mondo and Starling, it was like, unless you've got a couple of million customers, this thing isn't going to fly. But as you get ClearBank and Solaris and everyone start to come along, as those costs drop, then arguably the scale that you could deliver if you were delivering these services might go down, in which case it might be that actually let's let's launch a bank for Indian immigrants and we'll specialise in Urdu and Gujarati and we'll you know focus on that. And you, you've got to think with a certain population that size and super low cost infrastructure, 
there's a play there to be to be had with more tailored, you know, to specific population banking. And to your point earlier about network effects, when you get into those unique smaller segments, you can start generating network effects because you can tailor to that network. Right. Right. So that immigrant population, you're over-indexed on making sure your remittance back to India is highly effective. Yes. There's a small app being launched for market traders called Marchetti, which is SME banking for market traders. And then if you get all of the markets, the people in kind of pick a market in London and say 400 people here all on the same app, you have an ability to, for them to support and help each other and say, hey, I took a trade for you. You're doing the P2P between them, sharing services. You can create that density. Can you get to profitability is kind of the open question still, but you can definitely deliver more value and charge more for it. And it takes that sort of jobs to be done approach to the extreme is like, okay, so we all share a certain number of jobs to be done, getting from payday to payday, long-term you know, investment, all kinds of things. But then the smaller populations have ever more focused jobs to be done around that. Well, with that, we're cut to a uh, sponsor and we'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart. That this economy okay, is... We need to get down yeah. to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly the pressure is beginning to... Business investment. Brexit. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dog. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs, understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000 strong client base with your apps, and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution, because, after all, we're all innovators. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Last week, we turned three years old, although it feels like 30 years we've been doing this. So far, we've built digital fintech ventures for our clients across the world. We've recorded over 300 episodes of this podcast, not to mention building the 11FS Pulse product and working with our partner DNB on a next generation banking platform called Foundry. We're rapidly growing and scaling and therefore hiring. Yes, this is where the pitch comes. We're looking for talented people to join the 11FS crew. Are you an engineer, a producer, a designer, a talent scout? We need to hear from you. Head to 11FS.com and check out our vacancies. All right, let's get on with the show. So next up, five of the CMA9 are in trouble over open banking. This is where we put our sad faces on. In Finextra, the CMA has chided big banks over open banking delays. The UK's Competition and Markets Authority has reprimanded five banks for dragging their heels over the delivery of, the, of open banking functionality within their banking apps. The five banks, 
Yes, we're going to name and shame. Bank of Ireland, Danske, HSBC, Lloyds Banking Group and Santander were found to, to be mainly in breach of deadlines for app-to-app redirection functionality, forcing users to rely on desktop-only data sharing. The enforcement directions specify actions that the banks concerned must take, including the employment of external professional consultants, I'm sure they're very happy, to validate their plans and monitor their progress. What do we think? Is this a surprise? I don't think so. No, no, not in a million years. No. I mean, Um, I was surprised to see HSBC's name on there just because they they launched their connected money app last year. And you think like, oh, there's a bank that's doing something technologically minded. And so if they're dragging their heels on the rest of it, that's kind of sad. They're doing it technologically minded to take advantage of the other nine, right? So they're very good at consuming other people's APIs. Doesn't mean they're going to be very good at exposing their own. Yeah, I think there's a... uh, maybe an underestimation in the industry of just how difficult it's been to actually do this. Um, I mean, app-to-app redirection was known uh, and I think was put in place uh, as in as a requirement middle of last year or early last year, maybe. Um, uh, so it's been around for a while. So this is, again, not shouldn't be news to anybody. Um, but it, just the undertaking of open banking in terms of all the requirements which were coming up for the, um, the Q3 release, it's enormous. And I think... Uh, there's some people, I suppose, a lot of the fintechs will turn around and say that this is just um, banks trying to, uh, you know, stunt the progress and, um, you know, until they're absolutely ready to go on the offensive rather than the defensive, which is potentially a valid argument. Um, but I think on the flip side to that, um, this is hard to do. I guess, you know, some people will say, and I agree with them, like, it is hard to do. There are hundreds, if not thousands of back-end systems. People are spending $800 million a year or just on infrastructure, just keeping it up to date. And then others will cynically say, actually, look, there's no drive to, to get this live. Arguably, it, different, it disintermediates banks from their end customers and so isn't really in their best interest, apart from, as you say, consuming other banks' uh, data. No one's getting massive fines on this. They've got a bit of a slap on the wrist and said, you know, get a move on. But arguably, from if you were a, a psychopathic business person just focused on profits, is this not what you do? Well, I think there's, we have some sympathy for a lot of these clients, right? Naturally, we'll, we'll speak for them. Um, but even when there's positive things they're trying to do, it still takes some time to get this stuff out to market to that point, right? When they all wanted to do Apple Pay and they all wanted to do Google Pay on day one, mm. it, like all the banks wanted to be there, they all wanted the benefit of that. Mm. But it still took two or three years for that for trickling through and them getting on board. And that's when they engage in trying to do something positive for their customers, not even when it's regulatory. Yeah, I think um, it's it, it's a valid point. I think you have to look at the discretionary programs that are being set up within the banks to tackle, not to tackle open banking, because that's even more reactionary. It's more to go on the offensive on open banking and actually um, you know, expose their own API endpoints, but expose things which aren't just regulated, but just go beyond that. And, and those programs are, are embryonic, to say the least. So I think there's a... Um, you know, banks are still very, very reactive to the requirements that open banking have sort of stipulated. And um, again, I think there's a lot, a lot of work that's gone on behind the scenes just to meet that, which has then stunted the ability to do anything else. Are you seeing any open banking stories come through in terms of things that are interesting from that end consumer? Or are we still in the proof of infrastructure stage that people are just getting this ready, but where's the killer app? 
I mean, I'm definitely still getting emails monthly from companies selling research saying, you know, one in five people still haven't heard of open banking or know what it does. And I think that's definitely an issue in in trying to convince these banks to make these changes and meet these deadlines is they just don't see the consumer benefit yet. I still have people at work trying to tell me, get a Lloyd's account because you'll get free cinema tickets. That's what they're thinking of. Meanwhile, if I'm trying to tell someone, get a Monzo account because of all these great digital notifications and everything else that you get with it, they're like, I don't care, where's the free cinema tickets? So there's still (laughs) a jump to be made in the mass consumer mindset, I think, even if we are a country that has 50% fintech usage compared to others. Um, And that might be something that, Unless that changes, none of the banks are really going to step up open banking. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I think you can bring it back to what we discussed earlier on around Standard Chartered as well. You're opening up your systems. They've still got um, AML and KYC if people start doing, can I use this to move money around the world? Um, uh, I suspect some of them are going, look what happened to TSB's brand recently when they screwed it up big time and so on and so forth. So there are, there are other sides to banks' brand, which they're probably putting ahead of what they've been told they have to do in due course because consumers aren't pushing that hard for it. Mm. And there's I'm a bit of chicken. it's one in five. I would have thought it's four in five. Don't know what open banking mm. is, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Until you've got eight suitable endpoints which have a 99% coverage in the UK, you can't go up to a consumer and say, hey, we've got this great new service. You can log in for open banking to make payments but it only works for 34% of the UK can yeah. bank accounts. Sorry, like who's like that's just a failing proposition. Well, it reminds me of PayM when yeah. that came through. Suddenly it was like, register your uh, mobile number so that actually anyone can send you money. And the, the user journey meant that because no one else had signed up to it, you went to send money on it, you failed, you tried again, you failed, you never tried again. And then like it never really caught on. It was never a thing because there was no one pushing it. So I'm with you. Maybe this is a, you know, once all of these guys are pushed along and forced over the line, maybe it's only when you really get a high percentage of coverage that we start to see things. But but I'm not sure that customers need to know of open banking. Mm. I just think they need to know of a killer app that actually yeah. uses open banking. It's very much an infrastructure play. D- definitely. I was going to say the same thing. I think this is feature-led. Um, and I think until, until there's a feature which works and works well, until I can say to my wife who... Is, is not of the technological mind um, that perhaps we are in this room um, when she uses her banking services. And so I can say to her, actually, do you know what? You've got a nationwide account, an HSBC account. You can have it in one place. Until that works well and she doesn't have to go through all the you know, all the different screens and the very sort of relatively arduous onboarding flow to do that, um, it's not going to catch on. But as soon as that happens, and it, and it will be soon, it will be soon. There will be work that happens that, that makes this incredibly seamless um, in the not too distant future. And when that ha- does happen, then I think you'll see, we'll see more adoption. But the term open banking, you know, forget it. Yeah, I'm not really sure why it's important that people know about it, to be honest. And all the usage, I think, from our point of view, is going to be in retail anyway, right? So seeing your multiple bank accounts is nice, right? But when you have a supermarket that has a loyalty program and they get access to your bank account, and then all of a sudden you're online shopping, it's like you, you order the same 20 things a week and we just bill you monthly on. They don't care about us open banking. It's like, oh, I've got more club card points than I had last year. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, account aggregation is the the least imaginative and arguably, you know, okay, Yolt's doing pretty well, 
but it doesn't it's not a, a vital need and you mm. might argue actually it's a you know a temporary need while we're, we're not in the sub accounts pots and sort of you know functioning world because you're you've got customers who are having to use multiple accounts in order to structure their finances in a way that they want to which you know next generation banks might take away and so i agree with you like identity loyalty the pisp side of things where you're doing direct bank transfer rather than using a visa and mastercard oh sorry um you know my that's news to us be surprised <laughs> and he takes a sip on his beer <laughs> moving on anthony will be glad to know n26 competitive edge in america challenger bank N26 hopes cashback offering will give its US launch a competitive edge. Yes, the German digital bank N26 is considering an earn-as-you-spend offering. Sounds a little like Apple Card, actually, as part of its US launch later this year. While not common in Europe, cashback offerings are very commonplace in the US, where interchange is rampant and may be key to luring American customers. Currently, the fintech firm only offers 0.1% cashback option for its N26 business account clients, and regular clients aren't offered any type of spending incentive. Uh, N26 raised $300 million in a Series D in January, bringing its valuation to $2.6 billion, making it the top fintech firm in Europe. So, Anthony, tell us about uh, cashback in the US. Everybody loves cashback. Everybody has one or two percent across the board. It's still a high interchange market, as you said, right? So the economics are just different. It's still profitable to pay for your customers, and there's just an expectation amongst Americans that you'll get points. Uh, but there seems to be an interesting trend, both with Apple Card and with this this sort of earn as you spend, which I thought was always a problem because of refunds and cashbacks, and you're giving people money that actually you may have to take back at some point. It seems like an interesting dynamic where you're you know you're getting the cash now, and I might you know take my laptop and get a refund, and hey, I've got the cash back anyway. Well, I think to the point earlier about different banking business models, right? These guys who are looking at it as just a marketing thing and cost of acquisition. Historically, if you're a credit card provider and offering cash back, you want to hold on to that funds for 30 days and just get that little bit more net interest. Right. And so you would just hold it because the margins made sense. Uh-huh. If you're a consumer focused, you're like, we've got the interchange, we've given a little bit of it back. It's just part of our customer acquisition cost. So what, is it, what does everyone think about the US market and, uh, and interchange cash back? doesn't sound like it's any competitive differentiator to what's already going on. So I'd question it as a strategy. I think it just has to be a hygiene factor, right? If you don't have it, you're not even getting out of like... I remember going across and talking to a UK bank and telling them that uh, interchange was capped in the, in the UK and in Europe and seeing the, uh, the fear across their faces <laughs> that this might actually one day happen in the US. I mean, we had... For Hong Kong, we were meeting with some clients there and we're like, they were getting prepared for a, Hong Kong to become a low interchange environment down to 60 basis points potentially is the lowest it might go. <laughs> and they were like, that's so sad for you. <laughs> Where is it for debit cards in the UK? Is it 20, 20, 20 basis 20, points yeah. and 40 for 30, 30 yeah. for credit cards? So um, very different market. And I guess news because N26 is European based, but not news if you're in the US. Moving on. Visa branches out. Anthony, I feel like this story might be heading your way. Just just prepare. Uh, Fintech branch raises 170 uh, million euros and partners with Visa. Do you want to tell us about this? Yeah. So um, branch are an alternative lender in Africa. So 
they, they're able to lend as little as $2 at a time successfully and still drive the kind of performance you'd expect from a traditional credit lender, which is just incredibly impressive. They did start in Kenya and built up a back of mobile money. Um, but as they look to expand across Africa, they're looking for partners and we're excited to be part of that. How do you connect that system up to a Visa card, deal new credit models to help them access that and continue expand to expand, uh, expand their product? And yeah, it's only half of it is equity, half of it is debt to fund that balance sheet to the point. So who are their competitors in that, that sort of market? So at the moment, nobody's lending at that smaller level. Some of the mobile money providers have been doing it, right? Standard Chartered a partner to try and deliver that. But I don't think we've seen anybody who's been able to lend as little as $2 successfully with the unit economics that they have. Yeah, it's very difficult. We at Lesejo launched in Ghana and we set $15 as the minimum amount because actually it took people away into a space where actually that was quite a lot of money to borrow. So if I'm gonna borrow it, I better be sure I can pay it back. At $2, we saw a lot of gaming. People would just say, well, I can borrow that. And if I don't pay it back, no one's gonna really worry about it. So it's quite interesting that their low value model has worked. Yeah, I mean- The question will become, where do you take the customer next? And then who do you partner with to do that? And maybe that's partly where uh, Visa are coming in. Um, we looked at seeing if we could partner. And uh, in Kenya, there's a bit of an oversaturated market, in my view anyway, because you've got Tala and other, uh, any other number of players. Uh, Barclays, the big banks have come in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's interesting to see where this goes. But uh, both Visa and MasterCard, if we're allowed to say that in the same sentence, are looking at all these different spaces as to how to penetrate at the, the financial inclusion side of uh, financial services across Africa. I guess we've got that the scale play of both Africa and Asia, together with the fact that uh, digital infrastructure is so low cost and we can't, can start doing that, which has opened up whole new markets where it was never cost effective to offer mm. anything like this before. Mm. But it must be just um, you know, a very different, interesting frontier market to work in. Yeah, completely. So, and finally, this is how your cat could be the next voice of the world's first meowing debit card. Yes, in September 2018, business account absolutely no-nonsense admin, Anna, launched the world's first meowing debit card. This quirky concept produces a meowing sound when the card's used and has proven successful since its launch. Uh, to celebrate reaching 5,000 customers, Anna are now opening up the role to cats across the UK in search for their next feline star to be the sound of the contactless credit card transaction. For a chance for their cat to be the next voice of the debit card, owners can submit a video of their pets meowing to Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag, hashtag Anna Meow. The winning cat will be recorded and the voice behind the new meow that plays when the debit cards are used for contactless payments. So we hear a lot about fintechs and their functionality and the financial and the intelligent services and the financial model. But there's something about branding still. There's something about marketing. We still have singing um, uh, meerkats and opera stars and now we have cats and this isn't the first time Anna's featured on this show either no. it's, been, it's been up a couple it of times we, we, we have a really strange fascination with cats on this show Emily <laughs> have you written about uh, meowing cats I wrote about Anna's fundraise <laughs> or like um, proper news I've, yeah I, yeah I've, I've not we got distracted by the shiny shiny despite meowing despite the number of emails I did, I did not cover this one um I mean so I've heard about the meowing debit card before I'm not actually super familiar though so is it 
does where does the noise come from? Is it the notification sound on your phone? Is it yes? Yeah, I assume they weren't going to be able to get it into the terminal somehow. No, no. I mean, it's that classic, you know, ka-ching when you use Monzo or mm. that push notification that feel that you're using it. It's that it's audio branding as opposed to you know uh, a, a design or a yeah. Scheme. I mean, it's, I think it's wise not to go for the physical branding aspect because the hot coral has kind of cornered that market. No matter how much Starling tried with the vertical turquoise, it still hasn't quite grabbed eyes the same way hot coral does. Um, so it's nice that Anna's trying another route, um, and I guess once the the excitement faded away of the initial release of the meow how can you bring it back or find a new cat it's to get the office talking in terms of what's the best farmyard animal yeah for yeah. a noise when you make a transaction you see shops being full of animals now. <laughs> so so have, it's different people it's, have got their own you think it's cat first and the next time they need another boost it'll be well, ducks I, I, I think they've, they, they've hedged their bets or... with cats i mean you know they could have gone for a whole yeah, the whole farmyard the experience internet loves cats it does love cats. I'm, I'm waiting for the one guy who's got a tiger as a pet. <laughs> oh, can you only imagine? Can you only they should imagine? get a famous cat or something. Like, they'll bub or... Uh, some of them are dead now, I think. Uh, but, you but know, the, grumpy cat. But this is this is community crowdfunding, you know, growing <laughs> customer engagement stuff we're mm. talking about here. I, I wonder if, like designing your own uh, debit card, there'll be a point at which you design your own, like, push notification sound as well. Maybe that'll be the next one up and suddenly you'll have... Weird and wonderful downloadable ring t- paid ring for tones. ringtones. Paid yeah. for- oh my god! So it's like we're going around. It's all kind of circling back. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, from a visa perspective, you must see so many innovations around debit cards and credit cards and what people can do with various APIs, and just to try and to add something new. We have a whole book full of cards people have sent in, like the physical ones. People have tried weird cutouts, translucencies. Yeah, people tried lots of stuff. There was even one which was the cutout of a cat on one end. Oh, wow. Got stuck in ATMs, so not a go. (laughs) (laughs) Any any more weird and wonderful features that you've seen? No. (laughs) The the things that sometimes people put on the imagery and don't quite understand how it could be misinterpreted. Right. (laughs) Leave it there. (laughs) So we actually managed to catch up with Vic Casambros from Anna Money, who told us a little more about that meowing cat. Hi, my name is Vic Casambros, and I'm the social digital manager with Anna Money. Towards the end of 2018, Anna Money launched the world's first meowing debit card and used contactless payments, so you get the little meow on your push notification. And it's something that's proven pretty popular with people all around the world. We had lots of feedback and emails from people wishing Anna Money was in their country, places like South Africa, Australia and America. But unfortunately, we are just UK-based at the moment. So even here in the UK, we've had lots of people getting in contact, wishing they had the, some sort of side hustle or business so they could sign up with us because we don't do personal accounts at the moment. Quite early on, a few customers got in contact telling us they thought their cat would be a much better meow or they wished they could use their own cat. And then we even had that from people that weren't customers that wanted to get their own cat in the limelight. So we always said to them, you know, if we ever have a new meow or need to replace it, we'll be in contact with you. And that's a process we're starting now. So we are looking at replacing the meow provided by Pickles the cat because he's proving to be quite a bit of a diva and not the easiest cat to work with at times. So this is the chance for you to get involved. So if you think your cat's got what it takes, just upload a video of them and their best meow to social media and use the Anna Meow hashtag. 
We've been retweeting and sharing some of the entries we've had already, and some of them are really good. Once we've found that new perfect meow, we're going to try and get the cat into one of the recording studios, whether that's down here in London or something a bit more local and accessible to the owner. We'll also make sure to get lots of goodies for the cat and the owner too. Well, this wraps up this week's new show. Thanks so much to our guests. Can you tell people where they can find out more about you guys? Uh, Anthony. Um, at Anthony Crawford on Twitter or fintech at visa.com. Perfect. Chris. I'll just go for LinkedIn, but uh, if you want to see me, I'll be at AFSIC and there's Innovation Technology Week coming up next week after Easter. So I'll be around. Excellent. Emily. Um, you can find me at, at Emily J. Nicole on Twitter and you can read all my stories at cityam.com. Have you got anything interesting coming out? Uh, no. <laughs> I'll be surprised. You're still one of the news, best reads. News is daily. You can't ask oh. me questions like that. Oh, right. At the end of the day, I guess you're like, I'm just, I've just closed down till if tomorrow If I did morning. have something interesting coming out, I wouldn't be saying it on the podcast. I know, that was like uh, a journalist trick Monday. question. Still the magazine to get, or the newspaper to get, from my view. Oh, thanks. In a quick snap, I can get what's going on if I'm out of date, even by a day. Look at that. Yes. Free advertising for City AM. I like you it. You live in London. We're available over a thousand commuter hubs and stations. Okay. Uh, like Emily, it. Like, like it. Let's not take advantage yeah. of that. We gave you a couple of seconds. No need to, uh, to milk it. Anthony. Anthony? Anthony. What am I talking about? Adam. Adam. Uh, Adam D8 on Twitter and 11fs.com. And as for me, you can find me at Jason Bates. What do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email at podcasts at 11fs.com. And don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. Thanks to those who've already done so. We love reading them. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, basically everywhere for more content, including Fintech Insider on air and a brand new show, Home Screen. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. 